I'm Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a series of documentaries uh, made by Adam Curtis and released in 2011 called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. Um, pretty fantastic little series, actually. Um, it had a pretty pretty big impact on, on me when I... Um, when I saw them when they aired, um, it was just like, and like Curtis is just this, this fascinating style um, of presentation, but combined with this um, re- these really amazing sort of content here um, that uh, had, a, had a real, real major impact on me. Yeah, he has a well, he has a way of bringing together different threads of uh, thinking and different subjects into one episode um, that is uh, really uh, thought provoking. Yeah, and it's like um, the style is quite strange because like it's um, it's narrated by uh, Curtis, but like um, often mostly most of these films are composed of just like stock footage of uh, the the time and place that he's talking about, um, combined with interview footage from uh, either from like from the time like um, people being interviewed for TV shows that aired uh, in that historical time period, or like interviews with people today. Um, and just cut cut together in this way that's very kind of like impressionistic, like it's kind of a bombardment of images and uh, and sensations that um, paint a paint a real uh, picture of a of a thing going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I think he's um, he's really trying to create an impression of a kind of social spectacle. Yeah, um, uh, and he does a great job of it. Um, in this episode, we're just going to be talking about the first episode of this um, this like mini series. It's a, it's a three part series, and we're going to do three episodes on it. Um, and for for a quick introduction, the part one is titled "Love and Power," and it's um, basically about the the uh, influence of Ayn Rand on the kind of um, ideas of the late twentieth century and the um, drive to kind of create a technologically based uh, stable society. Uh, episode two is uh, the use and abuse of vegetational concepts in which Curtis kind of looks at um, the development of cybernetics and systems theory and how that was applied to the notion of ecosystems and these ideas of like a balance of nature and how those ideas then fed back into kind of policy that affected the uh, the real world. Um, and then part three is uh, the monkey and the machine and the machine and the monkey, uh, which kind of looks at like selfish gene theory and um, a couple of other sort of... Uh, world sort of events and it's, i think from what i from what i recall is uh, quite a bit darker in tone than the other um, the other two but for today we're just on love and power um which opens with this kind of like really strong kind of note of um this uh, sequence of like images of um computers and like early computers and like rapid fire cuts of um visions of like screens and crowds and airplanes and uh just all these all these images of modernity um cut to a cut to a rather nice soundtrack and there's a a text overlay which says that this is a story about the rise of the machines and how they made us believe we could create a stable world that would last forever yeah it's powerful powerful stuff um yeah, and I, I feel like that goes for this episode, but also goes for uh, the other two episodes in this this mini series as well. And and I feel like uh, all of these episodes kind of circulate around the work of uh, Philip Murawski. 
um, that uh, you see the the interest in systems theory, you see the interest in neoliberalism and finance, uh, and also the interest in sort of the connection of these things to uh, biological theories or theories of the human. Um, so if you're interested in subsequent reading uh <laughs> there's plenty of it if you want to go check out uh philip Borowski's work we're gonna have to cover some of that on the show as well eventually um yeah probably some selections because it is uh it makes for difficult reading he's not a very uh light read um we'll say that much right um but the sort of after this kind of um like rapid fire sequence of images um we get a kind of smash cut to 1950s new york with uh, ayn rand being interviewed uh, for a television show um and yeah she's she just like she's just kind of nuts like it just sort of like i always knew that this objectivism thing was absolute insanity anyway but like seeing her on screen like just and this like squirming kind of affectation and like her kind of insistence that the only the only thing that ever had any influence on her was Aristotle, and every, everything else is entirely a creation of her own mind. It just really, I don't know, it just she just doesn't seem like a stable or a kind of smart individual at all. From the well, it's uh, it's kind of an infamous uh, statement that she made, right? That she just takes this kind of identity principle from Aristotle, and then that's the basis of her whole philosophy, um, and also her claims to originality for her philosophy which are just absurd because there's definitely uh some figures in plato's dialogues that espouse more or less exactly the same philosophy that she does so i mean this is hundreds and hundreds of years old um uh, but you know the conviction with which she states her opinions uh can be attractive to some i suppose mm, yeah i mean they they must be but like I don't know. It just doesn't seem seem sort of smart or compelling at all to me. Um, you know, uh, but her, her her idea is this kind of uh, notion of objectivism um, in which human beings are essentially entirely alone in the universe, and they're they they kind of have this moral imperative to free themselves from all forms of control, like political and religious, and especially from control by any other human being. Like it's this like completely singular individualism. Um, that's being uh, being kind of talked about there. Yeah, it's it's a kind of uh, uh, extremely individualist uh, take on existentialism, right? Pretty much, yeah. And like her her, her sort of way of write, writing about this was through fiction. Um, she wrote two books, uh, The Fountainhead and um, Atlas Shrugged. Both both of them suck pretty bad. But um, in 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 both the books, there's these like. Um, singularly heroic figures who are the like embodiment of these ideas and they're they're surrounded by just gray worlds uh filled with these like completely worthless masses of human beings who contribute nothing and these like um heroic figures who contribute everything and it's just like um like i'll confess i, I tried to read atlas shrugged a good couple of years ago and like i just absolutely could not get through it it's, it's such a fucking slog and such a dull ugly book <laughs> yeah i think i in high school i read through the entirety of the fountainhead but it took me a good long time to get through it and uh and i didn't like it very much <laughs> there's really not much to like about the either the prose or the ideas or anything i was struck by one thing i think um 
that at times she kind of she writes in a way that's like the visuals are very stark and like are um you can kind of see this like harsh lighting and deep shadows and that sort of stuff but like it's just not not very well written at all i don't think um yeah and i i think that um part of the problem with her work is that um she has like a really uh fundamental misunderstanding of creativity that she is so obsessed with this idea of individual genius and um in a way that is kind of uh this like sort of pathetic echo of the rhetoric that was used um in the in the United States during the Cold War as a kind of opposition to uh socialist uh thinking right that mm. it's just like cranked up to 11 you know like you don't need anybody at all like it's just you know your genius just emerges from your own mind which is just absolute hogwash just anybody who has actually spent time uh you know doing a lot of creative work you understand that you have influences and and you work in a milieu and you take influences from other people and from your conversations and from the things around you and it's this kind of like just extreme individualist creativity i think is just really destructive because um it puts really absurd um pressures on people uh who are trying to create uh art or some kind of creative work to just distinguish themselves in every possible way from their peers um which is like personally destructive but also socially destructive and and utterly unproductive in terms of uh understanding how the creative process works oh yeah yeah it's real silly there's there's like um there's a bit quite a bit later in the in this film but um it's a it's a, it's a little clip from the film adaptation of the fountainhead where it's like a, a panning shot up the side of a skyscraper and like the the, the conceit in that book is that this guy uh, rourke is this genius skyscraper dude or whatever and he's like at the top of the thing that's like under constructions like the uh, the bare pillars and the kind of walls aren't complete there's like this panning shot up to him and he's all windswept and heroic but like he's there alone at the top of the skyscraper as if he built it himself which he emphatically yes, did which not is there's, there's no sign absurd. of labor anywhere or um anyone like the, the notion that this skyscraper leapt out of his head fully formed is insanity yeah <laughs> Just... yeah and i mean it it is um it is it is mad and it is um a kind of weird and twisted inversion of um reality in capitalist society right that like you know the the managers and the directors and all these people are are the only creators and everyone else is parasites right um <laughs> it's this, this kind of weirdo bizarro inversion of 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 marx's account of of class society um but also it just you know getting to this this point of of Rourke up alone on the on the skyscraper there like just what does it mean you know like what are what are they even trying to say it's just all so absurd what like, am i meant to take from that like why am yeah, i meant to yeah. give a shit about this fucking guy with his like shirt on the top of a skyscraper like what what <laughs> and, what's the lesson from that <laughs> like, and you know there's that um 
there's that other character in the fountainhead the sort of like mediocrity right like the 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 failure um the 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 foil character for Rourke, right um and he's like he like compro he compromises with the masses and his his creative vision is diminished and then i just remember that one scene where um it's like after his career has failed and he's been utterly destroyed by Rourke's manly vigor um then he he tries to like paint a painting um and he's just like and it, it, or it's not him but it's the narrator of the book who is like uh you know it's like he picked up the brush and tried to paint but it was too late his whole life had been squandered <laughs> now he's left with nothing but his own mediocrity it's what just like shit. <laughs> this extremely just judgmental and toxic way of thinking like oh you 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 were tired you like you 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 did a job that you didn't like and uh you were tired now and you might as well just kill yourself because you didn't accomplish what you could have when you were young right like it's like just awful it's real teenage edgelord kind of stuff <laughs> it's like it's no surprise that like it's like oh, yeah. 19 year old fedora dickheads who get into this kind of thing um but like so like as we're we're, we're laughing our asses off here at how fucking stupid this stuff is but like uh, rand's ideas were seen in the 50s as being fucking silly as well and mad or, well not so much silly as just crazy and like um like, people kind of had seen that, like, greed had caused economic chaos in the past and that, like, the role of politics was seen to be to manage and control uh, the desires of the individual, which was, like, the exact opposite of what Rand was going for, where the individual desires should be utterly unleashed. And, like, it is well, not, 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 not only that they should be free to act on those desires, but it is a moral imperative to. Yeah, it's the only rational thing to do, mm. right? And this word will come up again, rational, which is, like, <laughs> I'm starting to really hate that 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 fucking word because <laughs> it's like our, our sort of popular conception of rationality and reason is that it's like an attribute that it's a thing you have but i think in, in actuality it's more like a hat that you put it on and you're wearing the rational hat and you get to tell people that you are rational now because of the hat you know it's like and we'll, we'll see it later that like rand even believes that her own kind of mad emotional outbursts are rational like um and so does mm -hmm. everyone else who gets into this kind of stuff it's absolutely crazy but, like, Rand keeps writing and a group of followers coalesces around her um, who all believed in this kind of mad vision of a world where everyone was completely free. Um, and we get kind of a bit of an interview with uh, Barbara Brandon, who uh, describes her kind of, like, early meetings with um, Ayn Rand and being really taken in by this sort of character. This like, And she was aware that, like, it, it, it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. She was never, uh, she was never going to meet anyone as impressive as Ayn Rand ever again. And like, I can, I can see it, right? Like, I can kind of like the the exuberance, even like um, the exuberance with which she describes those encounters is like it is infectious. Like even for, through the the, the 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 lens of the camera. Yeah, and you, sometimes you meet people with um, charisma, you know, uh, that are just it's kind of. Uh, intoxicating just to be in their presence and uh your senses sort of desert you and and uh you have to be really on your guard um around people like that but uh obviously <laughs> she was kind of taken in i'm Very, afraid yeah yeah um but like unfortunately the rest of the country was basically taken in as well because uh we're, we're then brought 40 years later to silicon valley um and a time in which 
Um, Rand's novels had become incredibly popular in the United States. Um, and there's, there's, there's this line about, like, uh, there, there being the two most influential books in the country were the Bible and Atlas Shrugged. Um, and this is especially a uh, heavy influence on the entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley, um, who all seemed to, like, see themselves as manifestations of these Randian hero characters. Um, we get a little interview. We get some interviews with... Um, uh, you know, like Silicon Valley types who were, you know, and again, the, the, the exuberance off of these people is incredible as well. They were like really, really into it and genuinely saw themselves as, um, as Randian heroes. Yeah. I think the, the sort of the big one is like John McCaskney, right? Yeah. I think he's the guy who's interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, I was, I was a Randian hero. <laughs> he just looks like such an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like just, really convinced of it and i mean here's the thing right is that we were talking about this example about the skyscraper that rourke is standing apart uh, on top of and and it's kind of a uh, imperfect example because obviously there are many construction workers and so on who, who put their labor into constructing that skyscraper but in the case of software uh, it was much easier to delude yourself into thinking that this was the solitary product of your mind, mm. right? Because it could be in some cases, like you, you could in fact like write novel software from scratch. Um, well, and, I mean, you, you, know. you could, but I mean, you're still participating in the general intellect, right? You know, you didn't make the your computer, computer is, is <laughs> obviously the process of thousands upon thousands of people, right? So it's. Um, but it's it's easy to delude yourself into thinking that is a solitary activity, mm -hmm. um, and and so and so the 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 fit the fit uh, for these Silicon Valley types was very very strong uh, between what Rand was saying and what they were experiencing. This is hand and glove stuff. Yeah, it's like a, a perfect fit for the kind of um, emerging uh, culture in Silicon Valley, and um, and that culture was was this kind of like idea. Uh, that computers could turn everyone into Randian heroes. That um, and you could basically have a society where political control wouldn't actually be necessary because networks of computers would create a spontaneous order without central control. Yeah, which is like an intoxicating idea, certainly for the the nineties. Yeah, it's yeah. like everyone would be absolutely independent and absolutely interconnected at the same time. And he that uh, McCasney describes it as a morally exciting enterprise, which is a very interesting statement, given that uh, Ayn Rand and objectivism was opposed to all morals. Um, so <laughs> there's also kind of like um, there's a bit of a contrast here, like that, like Rand's writing uh, is very much about like. Uh, singular he hero figures who are basically alone amongst um, a mass of just like soulless automatons who, that make up the mass of humanity. But what these uh, Silicon Valley dudes were thinking about was more that like, no, everyone could be like that. You know, that like everyone could be the guy standing at the top of the tower mutually, like kind of recursively that everyone would be on top of their own tower in relation to everyone else's tower or something kind of mad like that. Um, there's a, there's a broadening of the kind of idea. Like it's not, it's not as elitist in this kind of manifestation. Yeah. In the, the, in the initial, uh, manifestation, I think it was somewhat, uh, democratically minded. Um, 
and you can kind of see it in like if you think about what it means to have a your own youtube channel right which would have been something that like these people would have just been like dreaming about as like this is this this would be just a fantastic and unbelievable thing right like you know this is something that would have fired these people up was like everybody could have their own tv channel right um and yeah at that time that would have been um plausibly something quite uh democratic and revolutionary because you know there was kind of like well at that time i guess you were probably getting into like 50 channels on tv or something but it's nothing compared to what we have now right um and so those kinds of dreams of accessibility and the ability to express yourself to the whole world um i think did kind of present that possibility in their minds of yeah everybody being their own rourke standing on top of their own skyscraper and being acknowledged by everybody for their greatness yeah i think um, there's there's it's a really like really obviously very enticing idea and i think it's 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 not wrong either that like yeah it's it's actually really cool to have this kind of like um accessibility to technology but like i think the the thing the the a, a word is coming up here that'll be repeated throughout the the whole sort of show um uh stable the idea was that like there would be the feedback loops in this network would create a spontaneous stability and you would you would have a world filled with randian beings who were free to follow their own desires and would also be entirely stable which feels like a contradiction. Yeah, no, it it is. Um, it's like we talked about in the uh, Californian ideology uh, episode that that these are contradictory ideas held together by ideological glue, right? So it's what they want is a world of absolute dynamism and absolute stability at the same time that it is absolutely individualistic and also absolutely interconnected. They just want 100 on every possible scale, you know, <laughs> yeah. like and there are no trade offs because the digital age is here. The new economy is here. The information age is here. The millennium is coming. Right. That was the mentality. Yeah. And like it was all seen to be like um, utterly novel and like that, like life was going to be qualitatively and quantitatively vastly different after this uh, transition. Um so yeah, there was there was no sort of like uh, uh, thought given at all to like those contradictions or like even potential downsides of what this would mean in practice, uh, you know. Which is like something that like I'm, I've started to read uh, "Brain of the Firm" by Stafford Beer, um, and that's one of the things he gets to quite early is that like a, th a, a thing that often sinks these kind of like adventurous enterprises is that the people embarking on them completely fail to work through the systemic consequences of their actions um yes that's very obvious here that there was just no thought given to the consequences it's obvious in our previous episode and also obvious here yeah uh there's a theme developing yes um but yeah there's an interesting section here where um uh, one Lauren Carpenter, sort of a tech bro in the 90s, um, puts together a sort of a demonstration of these ideas where he invites an audience into a big uh, big cavern or something with a big old screen uh, in front of them and, like, paddles under each of their seats. And, like, the paddles have red and blue sort of stuff on them, or red and green uh, on each side. Um, and they, they, tell the, they tell the audience nothing initially, but um, 
the audience start playing with paddles and they figure, oh, if, if I turn, there's red and blue, dot, there's red and green dots up on the screen. If I turn my paddle red, I can see my dot turn red and that sort of stuff. So that's kind of like, um, the crowd then starts playing with this and like, you know, creating patterns on the screen and such. Uh, it's all pretty cool. And there's like nice footage of this, but um, they then play a bit of a game with the crowd where they project uh, Pong onto the screen, the kind of the game with the two paddles and the ball. Um, and like the the audience is split down the middle such that everyone on the left controls the left paddle and the right and such. Um, but that if they if they show green, the uh, their paddle goes to the top of the screen. If they show red, it goes down. And what it like there there does seem to be a spontaneous sort of order emerging from this like chaos that like the audience does manage to successfully play uh, rounds of pong, and you could see this like. Uh, uh, just joy through the crowd as people are like figuring this out and like yeah uh, it's tremendous yeah it really is it's it's amazing it's incredible because the audience is exerting fine motor control over the motion of the paddle yeah just by interpreting what is happening on the screen and rotating this paddle yeah right and like Carpenter explains that that like um, if everyone showed green, it would rack it up to the top and would miss the ball, and if everyone showed red, it would like slam to the bottom of the screen. So there's like there's a balance that needs to be reached in the crowd, but like there there's there's no actual network between the individuals in the crowd. They're just kind of like spontaneously managing to actually achieve this, which is um, really actually quite amazing. Yeah, it's it's um, in a way it's like the precursor of Twitch plays Dark Souls, right? <laughs> yeah, but like maybe a little bit consensus. more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um. he does describe it as a subconscious consensus, um, which is like this really really fascinating sort of idea. Um, yeah, and it, it you know it's a perfect demonstration of sort of like cybernetic ideas and like cyborg existence, right? That yeah. He describes the crowd as a kind of amoeboid organism, mm. right? Which is um, interesting because amoeboids are mindless, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that never I seems and, to But, I mean, that's the thing, right, is that this could not be um, a deliberated outcome because there was, you know, people were just using, uh, like, they were calling things out, right? They were saying, like, up, up, left, down, 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 up, up like things like that right and they were making sounds and they were using the the visual cues but really it took a kind of um intuition of of how much each person needed to contribute to the uh the input um and that was uh not something that was actually like discussed or reasoned out no um, that was like a genuinely spontaneous sort of like meta structure that emerged from the behavior of the crowd, which is which is again like pretty much like Twitch plays X or Y or Z, <laughs> yeah. right? That that you just you just mashing inputs in and like pretty you kind of average it out and it starts to work, right? Um, uh, yeah, it seems to. But like again, I think I, I'm I'm gonna latch onto this idea that like yeah, it's his comparing them to amoeboids is interesting in that like the amoeboids are definitionally mindless sort of creatures and like. It's there's a temptation here to describe this as like a hive intelligence, but it's like it's distinctly not an intelligence. It's a behavior, certainly, but like to attribute intelligence to it would be a category mistake, you know? Yeah, it's um, like the actual range of 
behavior that uh, the games the game can have the the game states that can be adopted by by pong are very very limited right um, and that that certainly helps contribute to how well the experiment is able to work but it is a, a matter of a rather different kind than any kind of deliberation yeah right? um, yeah. But with this with this demonstration and with this kind of idea being developed, um, it does seem to be a model for like a, a or to these guys it seems to be a model for a kind of a new kind of democracy, a, a networked market democracy, the, in which nation states would be irrelevant and that politics would would have to get out of the way and not try to control the system because they had this idea that like this this kind of spontaneous order emerging from the um, individuals would be enough to create stability and order. Um, yeah, and I mean, this actually, this experiment is really the kind of thing that uh, Stafford Beer was experimenting with in uh, in Chile, right? That like when he was he was trying to do things about gathering public opinion or um, you know re reactions to to public speeches, that kind of thing. Um, it doesn't necessarily imply anything about free markets oh. <laughs> no that's it right. um, we're, we're gonna have to cover that uh, uh beers adventures in chile as well uh on the show um we're still planning that out folks but um that is coming up that, that's been a, that's been a request for a while actually is um stafford mm -hmm. beer and uh cyber sign um absolutely so we'll we'll get around to it <laughs> um but then we're, we're then sort of treated to this kind of like, um, as, as this idea really takes hold, you get this kind of cut of um, various kind of leaders and business folk and politicians really, really getting in on this, like saying that like citizens are forming networks. There's a, a planetary consciousness emerging and that um, the power has shifted to the citizens and the government must be a facilitator. Um, yeah, which is really, really interesting. Um, I mean... Yeah, I think especially what uh, Kenichi Omae has to say in this is is of, of certain interest that, you know, it's this new kind of democracy um, where the government has to take this facilitating role. And, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it really reminds me of, um, for example, like radical pedagogy, right? Like just... Uh, the teacher stepping aside and letting the class kind of express themselves and uh, and develop in the direction like student-centered learning, that kind of thing, right? Like these kinds of ideas that um, kind of have their origins in the left uh, and here are expressed as, you know, free market uh, ideology. Yeah, and like the the thing that struck me when I was watching this is that like it's very strongly predicated on the notion that the power had in fact transitioned to the citizens, and hadn't been captured by anyone else. You know, like which just didn't strike me as being the case. <laughs> you know, but um, at the time it was that was the thought, the the line of thought that like the power the power is going from from government and from traditional power structures and being transferred to the citizens directly. Um, yeah, which I mean again is just i feel like that is an idea that has certainly died <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, like i don't think anyone's talking about this anymore but it was very much in vogue at the time the techno um, oligopolies yet, that have developed since um you know really, really yeah betray and, that. and <laughs> the sort of particular people like that uh they interview aside from omai are like uh kevin kelly uh from wired 
who's mm. you know everybody should be familiar with uh, Stuart Brand uh, another sort of famous uh, tech intellectual Toffler was on there and then uh, oh Keith really Schwartz. I, I missed that actually uh, yep oh, yeah cool. yeah he's the guy he's the guy in the sort of tweed suit mm, uh, nice our old glasses, friend yeah <laughs> yeah our old friend Toffler yeah and he's just like you know gesticulating wildly as he talks about like this new age uh, um, yeah so yeah and, and, and uh, you know Curtis describes these people as the priests of the new mm. international network order and yeah. I think that's a pretty fair description yeah definitely and like there's um, there's definitely a faith developing <laughs> uh, along these lines um, we get a bit of a, a smash cut again where uh, to where Bill Clinton is elected. Um, and he, well, according to Curtis, at least initially sort of believes the opposite uh, of this, this sort of new idea that um, uh, he's, he, he's a sort of a stand in and an avatar for the kind of like um, using political power to change the world for the better. Um, yeah. And uh, Clinton doesn't actually really do anything in these episodes, but he gets a lot of screen time. And as you said, he's kind of a, a stand-in for an alternative to this sort of um, libertarian ideology mm. that's developing. Yeah, he, he really doesn't have much to, to do. He's a, he's a very much a bit player in this uh, in this story, but um, he's he's, he's kind of nice to look at, and he has a lot of a lot of screen time. Plus, there's probably just a lot of footage of him, which helps to uh, fill it's out like, the you know, episode. Shows up, does some public speeches, gets elected becomes a sexual predator um, <laughs> yeah yeah it's the usual the usual bill stuff yeah <laughs> um but we cut away again to like a 40 years previous with um alan greenspan uh who's hanging around with uh, rand and chums um and he's basically kind of like saved from uh, some silliness uh, along the lines of logical positivism by being introduced to rand um yeah and curtis yeah curtis describes uh logical positivism is an extreme form of rationality that use logic to reach absurd conclusions is that um, a fair description because i'm not i'm not all that familiar uh like i mean i think you know you can have these kind of reductio absurdum arguments that you can make in any kind of philosophy mm. but i think the, the the thing that's notable about logical positivism is that it's um I mean, it, it means a lot of different things depending on who you're talking about and what time period you're talking about. The, the term itself is really pretty flexible. Um, but one thing that's really characteristic of logical positivism is that it is an anti-foundationalist philosophy. Um, and, you know, the really sort of famous uh, example you get there is uh, Neurath's ship um, or boat, um, which is that this idea that, like, we don't have any foundation for knowledge that is given to us. We're just kind of building it as we go along. We're constructing the boat that we are sailing on as we sail. Um, and I think that this idea of anti-foundationalism can be taken, um, which in a way that I think is not really warranted, but which Alan Greenspan did, um, to just kind of this place of like nihilist absurdism, right? That like 
well, I don't know if I exist, and I don't know if you exist, and I don't know if anything exists, and does anything matter? And, like, you know, there's no foundation for anything, so what is the meaning of anything, right? It's just very, very sort of, like, a morally lost individual. And and certainly you, you get a lot of uh, examples of uh, philosophers that are kind of connected into this um, analytic tradition um, who... Uh, find themselves sort of unmoored from life because they are so caught up in this kind of logical mathematical linguistic analysis um you know there's the, the there's the famous story of like uh bertrand russell's sort of deep uh despair that he fell into and then how he had to try to kind of claw his way out of that by sort of getting in touch with humanity again <laughs> yeah um so I think it can go in that direction, but it's certainly not uh, where it started or what the kind of general thrust of it was. Right. But um, um, Greenspan does seem to have fallen into that kind of trap, though, and that's like how he's introduced to Rand to kind of rescue him from that. He's introduced by Nathaniel Brandon, who is uh, what was at the time the husband of uh, Barbara Brandon, who we met earlier. Um, he's introduced to the, the collective, as they call themselves, who uh, meet every <laughs> what a fucking name. Um, but they, they meet thought, every. They Saturday. thought they were being clever, but actually they were just describing facts. Yeah. <laughs> it's just uh yeah <laughs> it's like it's, know, it's like it's weird that they couldn't come up with a better term for this uh this well i mean they're like oh haha well we are all radical individuals however we meet and therefore we are collective how very <laughs> clever yes yeah. uh, they they and I mean, the reality is they just—they were a collective. Mm, like, yeah, it's like it's like actually just an accurate description of what their group entailed. Although they, their self-image was completely at odds with that. But it's it's a it's the it's the earliest crack we're going to see in the facade here, um, and there's going to be more of them. But um, they they meet every Saturday to read through the um, the manuscript for Atlas Shrugged and to kind of catch up on what Rand has been writing this um, this week. And uh, Greenspan loves the book; absolutely loves it. Um, and it, um, this this book is just more the kind of objectivist bullshit, really, where um, Rand's kind of big thing is an attack on altruism here and the like, the care of others, and like um, in in Atlas Shrugged, the kind of like the creatives of the world leave or they disappear and they kind of go off to an island to hide, uh, allow the world to fall apart, and then in the ruins reemerge to build a world in their own image uh, based on this kind of like virtue of selfishness. Um, yeah, it's it's like, what if the tech bros, but also Noah's Ark? Yeah, um. yeah, because like there's there's real because um, society falls apart in that book, like um, like ab absolutely dies completely, like as in these this handful of individuals, like uh, painters and fucking like steel mill owners, are the thing that's holding the entire fabric of reality together. Um, what a strange, strange book. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's it's again, it's this kind of perverse uh, inversion of uh, socialist thinking, right? Like, it, instead of like the general strike, it is like the most particular strike. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Um... And I mean, capital strikes are a thing that happen all the time when, like, you know, you get a socialist government in power, then the bankers go, well. 
what if we just took away all your money? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's the thing that absolutely does happen, but it doesn't happen in the way that Ayn Rand describes here. It's it's a much more sort of diffuse thing, and it, it there's no, like, artists involved. It's no. just... You know, it's uh, interesting that she she had to include artists in amongst the industrial magnates and the finance guys because she herself was an artist, like a writer. Like it's yeah, because otherwise she'd like, be excluded from the group. You know, right? It's it's this kind of like Prometheanism that, like, I think it, it it's it's a little bit hard to say why exactly capitalists. Uh, factor into Rand's sort of like elite right like what do they really contribute right like do they, they don't really have a creative vision necessarily but it's this kind of developing cult of the entrepreneur where like by assigning capital to making things by making investment decisions you are altering the fabric of reality right um and 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 that's kind of where they see this this harmony between the idea of creative work and capitalist investment. Mm. Yeah, and so like that's um that's kind of what's going to bridge it into the real world really and uh, that like uh Greenspan and the rest of the group see themselves as kind of like um revolutionaries or like models for this kind of new new kind of world that they were were sure was coming. Um the, t the totally free society. Um, and in 1992, Greenspan visits Clinton because he's, he's the, fed, the head of the Federal Reserve now um, and starts to kick off this revolution. Um, and he, he sort of like, the way it's framed in the film is that like um, Greenspan convinces Clinton that his election promises for like heightened government spending were uh, impossible or unreasonable and that like if he was to follow through on them, uh, the economy would spiral out of control. So he... Uh, convinces Clinton to instead um, cut spending and to, um, if he does that, interest rates will go down and the markets will boom. Right. And so, you know, this is this is the, the sort of Clinton side of the Clinton-Blair um, turn of social democracy towards uh, wholesale uh, embracing of uh, neoliberalism. Uh, but, you know, really the history of this kind of policy goes back further right you can you can trace it back all the way to carter um so it's in this documentary you can kind of see uh curtis saying that greenspan had some kind of incredible persuasive power that he was able to just get uh clinton to about face um, but if you actually look at the preceding decades of history, you can see that like there were a number of events and intellectual trends and economic trends that would have made Clinton uh, amenable to the idea, right? Like it, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, Greenspan's incredible charisma, I don't think. It was more just the... That's kind of the way that uh, the wind was blowing. And, and Tony Blair did not have Alan Greenspan whis whispering into his ear on a regular basis, but <laughs> still pursued a very similar course of action. Yeah, I suspect what's, what's happening here is that it's kind of for the sake of the narrative um, and that, like, Clinton's supposed original position is a stand-in for the public perception of what is 
original position would have been um that there there, there 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 is something of a turn but it's not necessarily within clinton himself um there's um yeah but anyway um it's also just like it's a 15 second segment in the in the film and um this this, this film is only an hour as well which is kind of like i could imagine it being cut very tightly to um to oh absolutely it it's just that uh clinton has a kind of outsized importance in this in this episode uh compared to what what he actually does so wanted to kind of bring it up um because yeah he's a he's a silent presence <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's, he's definitely there in the background but um doesn't doesn't have that much agency in this in this story at all um but um so these these policies are enacted and there is a boom um and there's a there's a sense that this time it's going to be different that like um, and one of the reasons it's going to be different is that uh, the computers are going to bring stability. Uh, and this will be the end of the kind of boom and bust cycles that um, had plagued the world until this point. Um, yeah, and like the banks kind of like were now using the computers coming out of the kind of uh, tech industry to uh, build models and predict risk and this sort of thing. And that, I think that, that sort of creates this illusion of zero risk lending, that they could um, be much more adventurous with their lending and uh, the computers would figure out the um, or the, the, the computers would make it risk free, essentially, for them. Yeah, there was sort of a combination of deregulation of the financial sector with the networking of the financial se sector. And then you, on top of that, you had the addition of this kind of algorithmic trading. Um, and one of the, the really sort of notable things about uh, this period of time was just like even the way that trading was done uh, began to become more and more computerized whereas it previously was much more the sort of traders in the pit shouting out uh buy sell orders right um there's a there's a really interesting um article about the transition um at the chicago board of trade uh, i believe it is um from the old way of trading to the new computerized way of trading um, and just just super interesting ethnography uh, that kind of captures this 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 groundswell and this change in the world of finance that hmm. was happening at that time. Yeah, so like this this is a time of profound change, and like it all looks really rosy from this kind of perspective. And even though the way it's presented in the film is this kind of like very um, heartening and kind of a warm presentation. Um, there's this belief that like America had entered a completely new age of stability, um, which would be, would be called the new economy. But yeah, and we get a bit of an interview with uh, Stephen Roach, um, and um, yeah, basically that like the the whole mechanic here was that. These people believed that the massive increase in productivity growth from information technology would allow this boom to keep going forever. Like they, they believed that they were at the very beginning of a huge um, acceleration point. Um, right. It was. It was basically like the being at the start of a new industrial revolution was the way that yeah, this was being yeah. talked about. Um, and it wasn't exactly clear where the productivity growth was going to come from it's computers but yeah they're cool. assumed <laughs> if you just computerized enough industries it was bound to be enormous um yeah and, and th there was some of that sort of thinking about the uh the conquest of matter you know that we kind of talked about in a previous uh episode that you were somehow like drawing productivity out of the very ether you know like the the celestial spheres <laughs> uh, it's very but, uh, um, very contrary to labor theory of value this is like just like yeah the, and i mean yeah 
it's it's quite interesting because a lot of the time the implementation of these computing technologies in the production process was designed to crush unions and actually just like drive down wages um but there was this idea that yeah like there was going to be this magic productivity dividend that would come with computing and which really never materialized no and that's a yeah but before we get on to that point there's like a little quite a nice little line here from roach where um it's it seemed to be the the rising tide that lifts any and all boats even if there's no water in the ocean that gives you a bit of a, a feeling for just how uh how optimistic this kind of uh this time was but uh yeah like the 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 productivity growth didn't show up like and greenspan was worried um he was looking at the numbers and seeing basically no increase in productivity growth uh, even with the computerization but profits were as reported were climbing and climbing and climbing and it became very clear to greenspan that something was badly wrong um and he, he he said it he said that like it's it looks like the markets are overvalued and we're in a dangerous uh, speculative bubble for which he, he catches just monumental amounts of shit from everyone. Um, yeah, the, the, the famous term was irrational exuberance. He didn't use the term bubble. He said irrational exuberance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that even pointing that out was seen to be ruining the fun, right? Um, everyone gave him shit for it and uh, he eventually stepped down from that position and um, and said that, well, okay, maybe maybe the computers are increasing pro- productivity, but it's in such weird and new ways that we just can't see it in the data. Um, yeah, it can't even be measured because yeah. it's so new. It's like the um, the kind of thing where in the Cold War when the, the Yanks were spying on the so- uh, Soviets and they were like doing flyovers of the countryside looking for like uh, weapons and aircraft manufacturing facilities and they found nothing. But their, the conclusion they drew, drew from it was like, oh my God, their technology is so advanced you can't even see it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Everything yeah. is cloaked. They have like cloaking devices everywhere. It's like a fucking weird way of thinking. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, I mean, Greenspan visits Clinton to sp- to sell the lie, and uh, the boom continues, and all this exuberance continues to uh, climb and its irrationality. Um, and it it sort of looks like to an observer as if this kind of age of um, you know, market power where politics wouldn't be relevant. It looks like that's actually arrived. Yeah, you've got the massive economic dynamism combined with uh, perfect uh, stab- stability. And yeah, you've, you've basically like uh, eliminated the contradictions of capitalism. Mm. But of course they haven't. But um, we'll be back to that because uh, they take a bit of a cut back to um, back to Rand and a bit back further in time. Um, who's becoming quite lonely and she kind of turns to uh, Nathaniel Brandon, the kind of like, uh, he's, he's the kind of head of the collective really, um, and uh, proposes an affair. But the way, she, the way she sort of describes this or the way it's described on her behalf is kind of weird in that like, she sees it as a perfectly rational thing to do, as in like even her emotions are rational in her estimation, right? Like that this this affair is just the most rational thing they could possibly do and he like convinces her of it. And we also get to talk to like Barbara Brandon, who like and again this the cracks in the facade are starting to develop here where uh Brandon like Barbara Brandon does say that like she was aware of how lonely Rand had been and how hard life had been for her. Um and that like she says like like if I could push a button and make her happy I would do it. And then yeah. that's altruism, right? <laughs> like and she's like, Yeah, it is, absolutely. Like even even the inner circle can't live up to this standard. It's 
<laughs> it's, exactly. It's insane. And it, it's, it's like, um, it's a complete inversion of what uh, Rand was saying was the case, right? So she was saying that this this relationship was purely rational based on their mutual virtues, right? Uh, but the reality was that uh, his his wife, Nefelio's wife, was allowing this relationship to occur without protest because she was uh, taking pity on Iran, which in Rand's estimation uh, is a just a uh, cause for contempt. Yeah, yeah. right. And, uh, pity, pity is weakness. Pity is 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 evil. You know. Um, yeah, and like we're, yeah, it's like, it's 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 not a, it's not a good philosophy, and it's not a good basis for much of anything. But uh, these these ideas have already spread to, uh, to most of America, and uh, by extension, are starting to spread to the rest of the world. Because like, by 1997, the American boom is reshaping the entire world, and it's kind of spreading overseas, um, and particularly spreading to Southeast Asia, where these kind of like economists and bankers they sort of believed that. Um, the way towards a global economic stability was to just allow for the free flow of capital across the world. And they'd set up this little experiment in um, Southeast Asia with uh, South Korea, Thailand, um, and a few other countries. had like bowed to American pressure and allowed um, all restrictions to be taken down and for Western capital to flood in. Yeah, there's a, <clears throat> a huge boom in FDI uh, that happened, or foreign direct investment that happened in these countries. Uh, but the the concern here was that this was not really productive investment. It was much more uh, investment in uh, real estate. Cough, cough. Uh, not at all significant to our current reality. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we, we get an interview with Joseph Stiglitz, who kind of describes this as like, um, there'd be some benefit to the countries when the money flowed in, but then massive damage when the money eventually floods out. Um, this kind of migratory capital uh, system is starting to form. Um, yeah, and, and, and at this point in time, we're still in a world where this could be cause for concern, as opposed to just being the way that the world works. Yeah, like, right? this is taken like for granted. Now it's just like, oh, of course, there's massive real estate speculation across the entire globe. I mean, that's that's normal. I mean, that's that's just, yeah, that's how you how you do things. That's just how we live now. Um but yeah, it was it was novel at the time, and uh, there were people pushing back against it, including including Stiglitz, and he was he was in charge of the uh, uh, Council of Economic Advisors, and they were they were trying to warn Clinton of this um, and try to kind of like get him to uh, walk back from some of the kind of worst of these excesses. But um, we're getting shut out by um, the Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Rubin, um, who had been at Goldman Sachs before and was basically the kind of um, uh, a finance stooge embedded in the heart of the uh, American administration. It's like, you mean to say there is a revolving door between finance and regulation? <laughs> oh, my God. Surely not. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> but, yeah, and, like, these, um, the, the, the good guys are being shut out here, really. The, the like, Stiglitz and Co., who are trying to kind of warn against this stuff are just being kind of um, blocked. Um and this is this is start, this is really sort of strange, right? That like the treasury are kind of like directing uh, or deciding who gets sort of access to the president, um, even from like other departments that are supposed to be um, you know part of the administration. But at the same time, people were starting to realize that like um, 
these computer networks and, system, and systems and such had not, in fact, distributed power. They had simply shifted it around and, like, concentrated it in new forms, such as, like, finance capital. Um, and the, t- the techno-utopians were also starting to realize that their, their side of the uh, equation, the, um, the World Wide Web, wasn't, was not, in fact, a new democracy. It was um, something kind of much stranger and... Um, I just like hadn't had the like the that utopian vision just hadn't actually come true. Um, yeah, the the there's a discussion about how uh, <clears throat> people will sort of eagerly confess their personal information, um, their their emotions to uh, the internet, um, and uh, it becomes a commodity. Yeah, so this is uh, Carmen Hermosillo, who was a, a hacker that was kind of deeply embedded in this kind of stuff, who eventually kind of like, eventually turned and sort of realized that this was all kind of bullshit. Um, and that people were pouring their heart and soul out onto the internet and were basically commodifying themselves because their their data ended up being owned by these corporations. Uh, and then the that data and those kind of like outpourings were then being essentially sold on as commodities, as entertainment. Um, yeah, she- and it, it, it's it's very reminiscent of that sort of famous thing where, when um, Mark Zuckerberg first started the Facebook at Harvard, um, he couldn't believe that people were just giving away all their personal information to him, right? Like it's just like they just give it away. Like I just have all their information. Like why? I don't <laughs> get it, but I'm yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna run with it. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, she has a kind of a wonderful. Um, there's a quote. There's a direct quotation from her in this um, uh, in this film where uh, cyberspace is a black hole and it absorbs energy and personality and then represents it as an emotional spectacle. Um, it's, it's done by these businesses that commodify human emotion interaction, and we are getting lost in the spectacle. Um, which has has distinct shades of uh, Guy Debord with his Society of the Spectacle. Um, Absolutely, I mean, I'm sure she must have uh, must have read it um, if she's trying to figure out her feelings about uh, the whole subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's maybe something we should probably maybe think about covering sometime on the show, um, or the, the the spectacle as it applies to the kind of contemporary um, uh, information age sort of society. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we could we could read Debord, and we could read some Baudrillard, and that whole sort of line of argument. Um, that yeah. would be nice. Um, but anyway, so the like this is still around the 1997 mark where the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal starts to explode uh, for the Clintons, um, and simultaneously the property bubble in Asia bursts. Um, and the way the way kind of. Uh, Curtis puts this is that the dream of a stable world was about to be assaulted by the two uncontrollable forces of love and power. Um, and we're, we're seeing the loop start to close here where this kind of like uh, exuberant and optimistic kind of um, turn starts to like sour. And like um, it turns out that there are forces that weren't being taken into account at all um, that are now starting to affect things. So, yeah, basically, like in Asia, the property developers got bust, the IMF flies in and um, Offers the bailouts and that kind of stuff, but they're insisting that the Asian economies um, westernize and uh, lower government spending and clear out uh, corruption and nepotism, which is kind, yeah, which kind of which interesting because the uh, definitely it's definitely something that did not happen in South Korea. No, <laughs> it didn't. But there was also no mention of like clearing out the, the blatant corruption that we're going to see in the uh, U.S. administration either. Like it's um, very very oh, colonial no. attitudes, I mean, you know. What he gets at later in 
in the in the documentary is that really what this is about was essentially laundering money through these the IMF and these national governments in order to pay off the debts of American bankers. Yeah, basically, and that's that's kind of what happens here, where like um, when they when they eventually convince these countries to take the uh, to take the deals, um, and this this is all kind of like happening under the the pressure of the treasury who are now running foreign policy for America, basically that like, um, Ruben is now in control of this sort of like foreign policy. And like that policy is being directed according to whether the thing poses a threat to the global economic system or not. Like that's the primary consideration for foreign policy now, uh, from this point onwards. Um, yeah. And, uh, the, the sort of, core example that he points to is the uh is Rubin's actions against the Suharto regime um and the ways that uh Rubin kind of used the levers of American foreign policy power in order to force Suharto to accept the IMF uh restructuring package uh that they they imposed on the country which led to mass unemployment, economic collapse, uh, religious and ethnic violence. Um, you kind of, you kind of, you name it, uh, going down the list, lots of, lots of major problems. And, and he's just, you know, totally nonplussed about, uh, what happened, right. in the interview that they have with him. Yeah. He's, um, quite a it's really unpleasant figure to look at in those kind of interviews because like he doesn't seem swayed by that at all um but the, like for for each of these countries the indonesia thailand uh, south korea and so on there's a when they take the imf packages there's a brief period of stability and then an immediate collapse into like uh you know a- anarchy and like economic kind of uh, hardship that hadn't been seen since the 1930s with the great depression right um, and th- this is, uh, you know, pretty much uh, it prefigures uh, what happened to Greece during the Eurozone crisis. Uh, the the approach that the Troika took to Greece was pretty much identical to what R- Rubin did to uh, uh, Indonesia, where it, it was just it was German banks being bailed out instead of uh, American ones for the most part. Yeah, there's there's a real there's a real repetition here in these kind of like um, these two periods, like the uh, uh, circa 1997 and then circa 2007. Um, but like, what's happening here is that the the bailouts are being used to rescue the Western investors. Like, as soon as the bailout money is received, it's given to the um, investors, and they evacuate immediately, which just tanks the economy and leaves the uh, actual taxpayers and the citizens of those countries holding the bag for that that fucking bailout, uh, which like hasn't done like that whole cycle of accepting the investment in the first place and uh, allowing the speculative bubble to to blow up and then the collapse like doesn't leave them better off than they were before. Like it's kind of like I don't know. Like is it possible to even argue that this is actually a good thing in total? Like for these countries, I don't think so. But I don't know. No, <laughs> it's pretty um... grim. That is a thing that, like, a lot of neolib sort of apologists will come up with, though, that, like, this kind of uh, neo-colonial sort of interference in these countries is, like, on balance actually good for them or something, some fucking bizarre kind of uh, arguments along those lines. 
Um, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah having, you know. having your unemployment rate shoot through the fucking roof and, you know, ethnic conflict fucking, uh, you know, uh, inflame in your country and, like, buildings on fire as far as the eye can fucking see. Yeah, it's clearly a, a wonderful fucking state of affairs. And, like, we should all thank our neoliberal o- overlords for um, for granting us yeah, that fucking I mean, clemency, you know? Just just go ask the people of Greece if they, they're feeling like things are really looking up these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this whole thing about leaving the actual debt in the hands of the taxpayers is something that has continued to happen on a massive scale. Um, and it's really when you analyze the actual flows of, of value that are happening, it's really a form of primitive accumulation. Um, this is this is this is a way of basically using force to get capital. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and what what a hell of force uh, a lot of force they have that like this this has the backing of the United States as a nation state to like ensure that it happens. And again, like foreign policy is from this point onwards being directed by the Treasury. Um, that yeah the the interests of finance dominate over all other interests and um and because of it like the, the promise of stability falls through entirely and like it, just a new elite emerges creating more chaos in a less stable world and this is the thing that really fucking boils me that like these these people who present themselves as the very serious people who are very business and you must take us seriously and we value stability and we're we're just the sensible people who want a, se- a sensible stable world they create more fucking chaos out of their actions chaos that wouldn't have existed otherwise you know um yeah yeah <laughs> fucking absolutely. upsetting um, it, it is upsetting it's terribly upsetting and um, we're still asked to take them seriously right they're, they they still insist by by sitting there on the kind of like they, they they claim to occupy this kind of sensible middle ground, the center or whatever you want to call it, and de- they demand respect for that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not fucking deserved at all. They're just assholes and fucking incompetent buffoons who don't seem to like, don't seem to understand what they're fucking doing. And then when it turns up to be an absolute fucking shit show, they don't care that it like massively impoverishes millions of people to do that. Right. Um yeah, they're 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 completely alienated from the consequences <laughs> of their actions. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's, it's clear. Like, I mean, uh, there there's that really famous. I don't I don't think it's actually famous, but this is a thing that really struck me personally. Who was it? It was definitely Paulson and maybe Rubin. I'm not exactly sure, but. I remember it was like two years ago, um, and they were kind of like looking back, you know, looking back on their mm. August careers, um, <laughs> and having a little having a little chat, a little public chat um, about about the good old days and everything they've done, and they're just kind of like yucking it up about uh, destroying financial regulation and impoverishing people, you know, and just, this is is big, like, I have this picture of, like, Hank Paulson, and he's just, like, got his arms out to the side, and his head, his head is, like, swept back, and he's just having this big belly laugh about... Oh yeah, we we sure took him to the cleaners, ha ha ha. You know, like like I, I have no sympathy for these people at all. No, they, not they, a shred. They don't care. They don't care at all about 
the people that they destroy. Yeah. It just... And, like, no no amount of abuse would be enough to fucking, like... I just... These... These fucking people. <laughs> I just... I can't... I can't have any sympathy for them at all. Um, and, like, Ruben, even in this fucking film, presents his kind of thing as, like, well, you know, we, were, we weren't going after Indonesia for, like, regime change for regime change's sake. We were just, like... You know, concerned that like about restoring confidence, like you know the the investors just they they'd lost confidence, and we wanted to restore that. And it's like it's such bullshit. It's like yeah, it's bullshit. They're saying they they want to get rid of corruption, um, and really, it seems like the reason why that was a convenient angle was it allowed them to get some control over the governance of the country, right? Um, yeah, yeah, they they wanted the country to bow, right? Like, and it's. Um, it's, it's a distinctly sort of imperialist and colonial sort of thing where it's like um, yeah and I mean it, it bears mentioning that that Suharto regime was actually put in place by the Americans in the first place <laughs> as part of one of the bloodiest campaigns of ethnic cleansing in the history of the world um, in order to defeat uh, Indonesian communism so you know like if you want to point fingers about corruption, well, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe like, it so, bears a little bit of self-reflection. You know, South Korea, also a country that was a military dictatorship uh, established through um, American invasion of the country. And, you know, it's it's like it's not like they're just like the Asians over there with their corrupt thinking. Right. Like. The Ameri- like the history of American imperialism is totally tied up with the history of these countries, yeah. right? And like they'll um, they'll go over and they'll fuck you up one way, and then a generation later they'll decide to go over and fuck you up the other way. Yeah, and you it, know, like oh, we we did it. We it, there was something wrong. There was something off about the way we fucking bollocks did <laughs> the last time. Um, this this other way that we're gonna inflict fucking pain on your population is much better. It's just yeah, and I I and. I, I mean, this is something I really remembered in in listening to this documentary um, or watching this documentary was the extent to which this kind of um, anti uh, anti Asian um, discourse was so common in the news and just just everywhere. Right. Like, um you always heard about the corruption and about how they needed to adopt like the Washington consensus values of like transparency and uh, accountability and, and uh, create a good investment environment for foreign capital and all this kind of thing. Um, And it was, yeah, it was just everywhere, every week in the news, you heard this stuff. And it wasn't until the 2008 crisis that it finally quit, you know? Yeah. yeah. That was that was when it ended. Uh, then it was like, oh, okay, well, uh, ha, 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 I guess uh, maybe we're not so perfect after all, right? Um, and, and, you know, the other thing I remember is, like, I often kind of these days sort of, like, feel sorry for uh, Americans having such a terrible president and, you know, having all these, like, really sort of deep soul-searching moments of of despair about their country um and uh you know it's not that i don't have my own criticisms about my own country but um definitely there's a lot of angst going on 
but the thing I remembered watching this documentary was how incredibly insufferable Americans were at this point in time. <laughs> it's like I thought back to my American friends and how painful it was to have a discussion with them. Um, and I was like, oh, right, yeah, the incredible arrogance. That's that's where this angst is coming from, is having, having been brought down so low, you know, from this point of just, of course we can just rearrange the world because we're the best you know mm-hmm. um yeah yeah so <laughs> oh it's grim but um speaking of 2008 yeah like um you, you would you would kind of think that this uh this monumental fucking disaster in and around 1997 would be um enough to dissuade people from this line of thinking but it wasn't um it all sort of started back up again and went back on track to uh 2008 um yeah and i mean the one thing that uh they that curtis tries to sort of say here is that you know taking up that love theme uh kind of returns to the love theme and uh he basically tries to claim that the lewinsky affair allowed the the treasury to override clinton's authority um and sort of get involved in indonesia that seemed a bit weird Um, yeah um yeah and i'm like uh like i don't think bill clinton actually gave a fuck like yeah i mean he he probably would have been totally on board with this (laughs) in the same way he was totally on board with what uh the clinton foundation got up to in haiti you know, like later on, like he's just—he's not the person that Curtis makes him out to be in this in this documentary. Um, he's really so. not, no. But um, I mean, it's like, yeah, the way it's the way it's put is that like the the Lewinsky uh, scandal was draining the president's attention and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think you're right. Like it would have just played out this way anyway. <laughs> it would have just handed the fucking reins to the treasury in it anyway. But the, the next sort of world historical event to kind of come along here in the film is, uh, is 9-11, um, in which um, there's this sort of moment in which uh, everyone thought that everything had changed, but then it very suddenly didn't, and the system returned to normal. And this is, this is Greenspan's doing, where um, in reaction, Greenspan uh, cuts interest rates and um, wants to kind of achieve stability via stimulated uh, consumer spending. And there is a, there is this like a flood of cheap money, but then there's no inflation, which is the usual thing that follows this sort of stuff. Uh, but instead, instead of inflation, there was just a consumer boom, and it did seem stable again. Um, yeah, and what a weird uh, moment this was, right? That you know, nine eleven happened, and um, I mean, I've seen that footage in the documentary like ten million times, and I'm sure everybody has, but. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a while and kind of like looking back at it, it's like, wow, this is just, this is just unbelievable. It's, you know? it's like, yeah. it's like it, the, I mean, you know, Baudrillard, like this was before Baudrillard died. Um, and he kind of famously wrote a book or like a short essay sort of saying that like, it was, is something to the effect of essentially that like, you know, Americans had gone and created all these disaster movies, these Hollywood disaster movies. And then, like, somehow they managed to make it real, you know, that like this, this, this was like, it's indistinguishable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, you can't tell apart what was happening in New York at that time and what you would, the scenes you would normally see in a disaster movie. Um, and and it, it, it's just uh, it's just amazing. It's still amazing to think about 
to, to think about the World Trade Center going down. Like, it's just like, unfathomable, you know? Um, it's truly and, crazy. Uh, and like, um, yeah, again, seeing it on screen again, it's just like the, the astounding noise and the fucking panic and the fleeing and the clouds of fucking smoke. It's um, a real, real disaster, absolute fucking disaster moment. But then followed by this, like, weird tranquility and like a return to stability. right and just rem- i just remember george w bush just being like get out and go shopping yeah you know like that was the response right like right afterwards like get out and go shopping and then greenspan did the interest rate cut and then the shopping happened right yeah um big time and that's that's the that's yeah a huge boom in consumer uh consumption and um a sense that this system was back to a stability end, but then this 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 was um, again an illusion because uh, what was actually going on here was that the 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 boom was more attributable to the actions of China, who had um, uh, set set it up in such a way that they would um, have incredibly cheap exports and Chinese goods would flood into America, American dollars would flood into China, but then. China would use the American dollars to buy bonds so they would pump the money back into the United States. And it was this kind of like um, kind of just a self-sustaining kind of stable loop that they would use to... Um, yeah, at the time it was often called uh, Chimerica. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah. And the way the way Curtis presents it is that like this is, a, this is a way for Asia to control the United States and to kind of essentially put a leash on it um, or a noose, depending on who you ask, you know, <laughs> like it's... Um, yeah, yeah, the, like... China didn't actually get hit that hard by the fi- Asian financial crisis, but they saw what happened, um, and they were like, "That's not going to happen to us." Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and <laughs> we so don't want that. they they very deliberately uh, created a strategy uh, to manage and limit and manipulate foreign investment in such a way that they could avoid being destroyed by um wall street uh capital in the way that uh these other countries had been yeah and a a very canny move uh certainly um and the the availability of the uh the cheap money now in flooding back into the united states um creates another orgy of lending <laughs> where you know the the uh, the banks are lending out to um the least least credit worthy individuals and so on and um right so it's it's notable that um people often call the the crisis of the early 2000s the 2008 crisis but um the crisis actually started in 2007 um, but it started in the subprime loan sector for uh, lending to uh, minorities and especially to black people. And that's where this kind of money was going. It was going to the populations inside America that were marginalized and impoverished. And it it's described in this uh, documentary as like a third world developing country within America's own borders. Yeah. Which is a wonderful um, way to, uh, to, to put it. And there's uh, there's like trillions of dollars being recycled into this internal third world economy. Um, yeah. And like the, the banks are again relying on the computers, right. To stabilize this thing. They, they believe that the presence of the computers means that the, the, um, the loans are without risk. Um, the model, yeah, there's the model an will get endless right parade of articles 
at this time about financial innovation and how it justified uh, ever-increasing CEO bonuses. Um, and, and part of that, part of it was regulatory innovation, quote-unquote, but part of it was also <laughs> the actual uh, software products that were being deployed here. Yeah, which was Excel. You know, yeah. by and large, well, it yeah. was Excel. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the, the auto trading and all that kind of thing. But, you know, really. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I just I like to believe that this stuff is nowhere near as sophisticated as it actually claims to be. Um, having seen how the sausage is made in many cases, I'm like, yeah. oh, no, this yeah. is. <laughs> um, what you think is a fantastic AI system is, a, is actually a for loop. Um, <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's held together with a string and duct tape. Yeah, um, but yeah, this 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 collapses in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, and there, you know, Greenspan and Cl- uh, Clinton and Blair and Brown, their visions turned out to be absolute fucking nonsense. Um, the stable market democracy was bullshit. It instead generated chaos and instability around the world and eventually brought that chaos back into the capitalist core itself um, and just wiped out value all over the fucking place in the United States and Europe. Yeah, and again, they, they mobilized for bailouts. Um, and, like, the bailouts happen, the money is used immediately to pay off the um, finance sector and the economies all kind of stagnate or collapse. Um and then that, that sort of like Greenspan-esque policy of zero interest rates was continued uh, in such a way that um, it, it pretty much encouraged the uh, real estate bubble that we, we find ourselves in right now. Um, and and, and the, the massive increase in wealth inequality uh, uh, that we find ourselves in. And also, uh, you know, notably the uh, massive impoverishment of African-Americans. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. That's the one that doesn't uh, get much airtime. Um, it's only started to well, get yeah. brought up. Uh, I wonder why. I wonder why, yeah. Because uh, uh, it's almost as if they're not seen to be important in that society. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, like, it's, it's fucking devastating stuff and, like, had a disproportionate impact on um, on people of color in the United States. Um, yeah. Bad shit. Uh, Bad shit all around. It really, really did. Um, and yeah, and I mean, it's exactly as they describe it, right? A third world within the United States' own yeah. borders. Um, and so and treated exactly like that. The, the thing that like disproportionately wiped out wealth for black families in the United States was that um, those like sort of white middle upper class families tended to have their like assets in stocks and so on. Where, and some of it in housing, but like for um, minority families who are kind of either in in the sort of middle class or aspiring to it, their um, you know security was in the housing disproportionately. So like the 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 numbers when you compare the the, the demographics, they were like way way skewed, um, and all of that was wiped the fuck out uh, when that all collapsed and all that shit got foreclosed on. Um, so massive transfer of wealth away from black families and into um, into banks, um, which is bad, fantastic. Um, the the film closes out on quite a downer note here, where um, the computers didn't liberate us from the old forms of political control, and they didn't turn us all into Randian heroes uh, who were in control of our own destiny. And instead, they we did all let kind of us feel... make podcasts. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's, where, it's where a the notab- fuck would we notable contribution. This? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> all, I mean, you could almost say it was all worth it. Um, <laughs> but, 
but no, like we, we, we all kind of feel this now that we're all kind of fucking lost um, in this world inside this like ghastly machine. We all feel like we're just components in this thing that like operates by this this rigid but crazed internal logic that we are absolutely powerless to confront. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the the sort of images that Curtis uses of these anonymous uh, server farms um, to to represent the this impersonal uh, networked uh, financial system that runs the entire world are, are, are pretty. Uh, they get across the idea pretty well. They do. Um, um, yeah. And I think his choice of the closing shot is quite nice as well, where it's a, it's a return to the Pong game with the crowd. But having having seen the whole thing, there's a distinct sense that it's not the crowd that are playing the game. The crowd are being played by the game. Like, they're, they're, they're being fucked with in some way. They're being manipulated by that system that they're spontaneously creating. Um, there's a real just dystopian kind of um, feeling to that last shot where the, the crowd of people are, are flipping their paddles and controlling the game or being, being controlled by the game in my kind of reading of it. Um, yeah, real, real downer ending. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and I mean, I think that they're, you know, having to sort of had this discussion um and talk through each of the the points and, and the beats of this uh, documentary. Um, I feel like the whole sort of angle about technology and finance capital comes out pretty well, and it actually sort of becomes a more coherent narrative in retrospect because we we kind of just like cut out the love angle of this story. We did. Yes. Um, I feel like the power angle of this story is actually pretty coherent and easy to follow. Um, the love angle, I feel like, kind of confuses the issue a little bit, but I, I understand why uh, he might have included that as a way of like making it personal. I think um, so. Yeah. Um, I think of of this of these three films, I think uh, this opening one is is very is is very strong, and I, I still I regard it as a classic. But I think it's thematically weaker than the other two. Um, and it's uh, because it, it contains this sort of one core idea of um, an, an illusory sort of desire for stability that ended up being, um, you know, nonsense. Or it, like it, it, it at the very least didn't uh, fully take into account power dynamics. Um, and it's also this kind of thing that like you can't just apply technology. Like if you're if you're honestly counting on the application of some new technology to save you from everything and to create a utopia, and you're not taking into account power and structure um, and interests and like material conditions and such, then you're you're already fucking doomed. Like that that whole project was doomed from the outset because they believed that they could transcend power by simply plugging in a bunch of routers and, and, and computers. Like, and you know, the, the sort of, um, noteworthy thing here is that the people who did this suffered no consequences. At all. <laughs> oh no, of course not. Why would they, <laughs> they just got richer. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, there is that personal story of Ayn Rand and her, her, her love, uh, affair with, uh, uh, yeah, Nathaniel Brandon. Um, and in that case, we can see that Ayn Rand actually came out of it quite uh, emotionally scarred. 
Um, and actually, everybody involved in the collective came out of it fairly emotionally scarred. And in the end, it was kind of only Greenspan who remained a sort of loyal follower of Ayn Rand. However, I think that that is somewhat misleading because that consequence, the consequences that the members of the collective suffered in this uh, love affair and the the out, the fallout of its its um, end uh, don't carry over to the people involved in this the power story. No, they don't. Like, really. Those people didn't suffer any consequences mm. at all. Nothing at all. Like Bush didn't do anything to crack down. Obama didn't do anything to crack down. Mm. Nothing was done. Everybody just got stinking rich. Yeah. And like I keep harping on it, but this is this is the same cohort that we're constantly asked to take seriously and to venerate. Like Yeah. No. <laughs> it's like they're not worthy of respect. I'm not gonna fucking do it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, no. I mean and it, it's it's worth sort of like digging into the dirt and seeing who these people actually are and getting beyond the sort of genuflection that you see in the op-ed pages of the New York Times, right? But the point that Curtis raises about this kind of faceless system of social control um, and so-called stability, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as though you took the um goss planner figure in red plenty and uh made it into a machine you know yeah, <laughs> yeah almost as if he, yeah as if the um cyber the budget of pain is allocated <laughs> that's the one uh but yeah it does it does bear like striking resemblance to the desires that were in red plenty um the desire for a, me- a mechanized economy that would be um i mean i, I suppose the the in, in this story, they don't really harp on the rational bit as much, but um, that would be sort of intrinsically liberating and the, the, the feedback in the network would, would take care of everything. There's a lot of that in there, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think in future episodes we will get get into that yes. and <clears throat> talk about the relationship of socialism and neoclassical economics to this kind of... Uh, neoliberal ideology that was the sort of market side of this story because Curtis doesn't really get into that here he talks about Wall Street as like actual people with power and he talks about Silicon Valley ideology but he doesn't talk as much about um, the sort of free market ideology that was uh, all pervasive at that time um, and and there there is a lot to be discussed there. Yeah, um, I kind of suspect actually for this film that um, because it's because it's crammed into an hour and it has to fit that kind of BBC format. Um, I wonder what the original script looked like because w- one thing that's notably missing is the dot com crash. Um, and I wouldn't like because I think we mentioned it in the pre show, but um, the Silicon Valley guys are only really involved for the very first quarter of this film and they don't come up again but i wouldn't have been surprised to learn that like the original script had them kind of like being tied back in with the dot-com crash immediately before yeah absolutely uh, 11 you know because um, enron gets a mention but the dot-com bubble doesn't no no um 
Yeah, um, pretty. I think I think this this has this is a good film. Like, um, I'm mm-hmm. really looking forward yeah. to getting onto the next two because um, I think I do remember them being stronger even than this one. Yeah, that's also my memory, my my recollection that that the the particularly the second uh, episode had a very deep uh, impact on me, and it, it left a, it left a real impression. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to taking a look at that. And I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about this sort of dilemma of of political action in the face of of, of a system. Uh, and that's really what we're going to get into in, in the next episode. So maybe we'll just uh, save our final thoughts for then. <laughs> yeah, or or for like a wrap up at the at the very end. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think that uh, about covers it. Fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, just thank you, listeners, for coming along with us on this. Um, if you like this episode, we've obviously got two more coming up that'll finish off the uh, the series, and um, we'll probably then afterwards figure out what we're going to do next. Um, but I think we're, we're going to be expanding on these themes, uh, as Kyle said, um, and trying to, uh, I guess in the totality, we'd kind of like to, with the show, um, explore kind of all the various ways in which um, the intersection of kind of like technology and politics has failed in the past in order to kind of put forward some sort of more positive... Um, ideas later that like kind of try to try to identify what the underlying wrongness in all these kind of occurrences was and um yeah and i I think that the sort of notable thing in the trajectory of this show um is that we started out with the idea of kind of looking at socialism and technology and looking at a critique of silicon valley right um but as we have um continue to sort of explore both of those themes um i think that we can see so much uh overlap in these two histories that um i think it's it's important to actually think about that overlap and uh think about where there are divergences and think about where there are opportunities to do something different yeah Um, i think it's it's crucial to understand the past or it's, it's crucial to understand history so that we can hopefully not repeat the same mistakes again. Because like we've just seen in this episode, like a basically exact replication of the same mistake twice within two decades. Um, and like, it's, it's like, especially if we're, if we're going to have any chance of like um, surviving this climate apocalypse that's coming within this century, um we're going to need some kind of like technological communism like it's going to be a fusion of both uh technological prowess and uh political and social organization that gets us through this um long dark night if we can get through it um and if we're going to attempt that project at all we need to understand the ways in which various projects of a similar ilk failed before um and how and this this is the thing that Curtis is really good at is pointing towards how you know, like, historically contingent sort of actions and, like, people and, like, weird psychopaths being in the wrong place at the wrong time can have massive, massive knock-on effects and, like, completely unforeseen consequences that reverberate all through history thereafter. Um, Yeah, we need to understand that stuff. Um, Right, and um, I think that uh, it's, it's, 
really important uh, that we both keep in mind that the issues we brought up in our discussion of four futures are very real, right? These these concerns are very real, um, and the failings that we've seen in the rest of our our episodes of of sort of technological cures or fixes or reforms or revolutions are also very real and and we're we're kind of trying to piece together a picture where those two things can both be brought together in a way that makes sense yeah and um if if listeners have any suggestions or like ideas for episodes or even just um information or like papers or books or whatever that or films that you think we might be interested in or that we should know about please do ping us uh we're on twitter at gi unit pod you can find us on facebook as general intellect unit um get get in touch in either on either of those platforms and we'll gladly take a look at uh, basically anything that's suggested and if it's if it's actually good and interesting we'll we'll you know add it to the rotation um and in the meantime we're on all the podcasting apps um so you can uh, if you haven't already subscribe uh, if possible leave a review or just share with people you think that might also be interested in hearing about this stuff um yeah and we'll be back in two weeks with uh, part two of all watched over by machines of loving grace thanks for listening and goodbye bye